Welcome to The Gateway. This week we are joined by Tina Gade, a Senior Research Fellow at the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs. Tina talks about her new book, Sunny City, Tripoli from Islamist Utopia to the Lebanese Revolution, which was published by Cambridge University Press last year. In the book, Tina looks beyond typical understandings of Lebanon's second city, Tripoli, that have typically focused on the city as an Islamist or even jihadi political centre. Instead, she argues, the city has a much deeper history of resistance and collaboration with the state and the wider region. I begin by asking about the perceptions of Tripoli that Tina is writing against. So um, I wrote this book because I felt that there is a huge lacuna in in the in the study of uh, of northern Lebanon. In fact, there is no uh, no scientific book published on Tripoli um, since nineteen sixty seven, and there are books that I I do write against, and um, some of them are good, but they uh, they all write about Tripoli as a city of radicalism or a city of uh, jihadism, and I argue, I mean. I, yeah, I do argue that I think that this focus is too narrow, and uh, of course, because it's uh, it's Lebanon's uh, Tripoli is Lebanon's second largest city, and warrants much greater attention than just the focus on uh, it being a cradle of terrorism, which is obviously flawed and uh, reductionist. So um, I'm trying to argue that um, I mean. It, I'm still analyzing Islamism, but I'm looking at it within a broader context. So I'm looking at the broader history of Tripoli mm, from 1920. Um, I'm arguing that uh, Tripoli is in fact um, a city in within the larger universe of uh, something I call secondary cities, second cities, cities that used to have um, a larger um, symbolic role, a political role, and that were dethroned at the creation of the modern state in in Lebanon, Iraq, and uh, and Syria. So Tripoli used to be the uh, an Ottoman provincial capital, and it's, it lost its status to, when um, the state of Greater Lebanon was created in 1920. The same is true for Mosul, um, that was also an Ottoman provincial capital and lost its status in, in 1921, and Aleppo in Syria. And why have there not been any uh, big books, do you think, written on Tripoli since the 60s? Is it because uh, Beirut has sort of taken most people's attention? Or? The focus on scholarship on Lebanon has been, as you say, uh, on Beirut, on southern Lebanon, uh, on Christian Mount Lebanon. Mm. And, uh, I mean, there has been, uh, there is a book on uh, on Akkar uh, by Michael Gilsonan. Um But... Um, I don't know, actually. Um, and uh, can you give us a bit of an overview of Tripoli for people who might not know much about it? So it's political position within Lebanon, uh, sort of major industries and the class and religious structures within the city. So Tripoli is the second largest city of, uh, of Lebanon. Um, it sits in northern Lebanon. It's the capital of the north and has approximately f- uh, 500,000 inhabitants most of uh, of these inhabitants are uh, are Sunni um, Muslim, uh, approximately uh, eighty to ninety percent, 
and the rest is uh, Christian and Alawites. Uh, the major industries of um, of Tripoli are, um, I mean, Tripoli used to have a lot of industries. Uh, used, uh, it has an oil pipeline that goes uh, to Kirkuk in Iraq, and it has it's a major port town, harbor, and it used to be an agro city, um, exporting uh, the agricultural goods of Syria and Lebanon during the Ottoman Empire of Greater Syria during the Ottoman Empire. Um, today it produces olives and um, oranges, among other things. But the, the economy is really stagnated, um, not only in the recent years since 2019, but uh, ever since the civil war. So ever since the um, ever since the 1990s, actually, I would say, and um, because during the civil war, the, the city lived uh, a lot from smuggling from Syria. But since the 1990s, uh, the city has uh, stagnated economically. And today, most of the wealth can be made in real estate. Uh, politically, the city is um, is the capital of political Sunnism. I'm sorry to speak about those sectarian categories that we don't actually like very much, but this because of Lebanon's um, consociational democracy, where quotas are reserved for certain um, sects. For example, um, in Tripoli, in order to be elected to parliament, as you know, um, you, I mean, there are quotas, for example, five quotas for Sunni Muslims, um, um, one for uh, an Alawite, and um, one or two for a Greek Orthodox and one for Maronite. So altogether eight. So uh, it's a capital of political Sunnism, and it was, since 2005, it was dominated by the future movement, Mustaqbal. And um, it is also the... Um, the hometown of many of uh, of Lebanon's wealthiest uh, men, including uh, Najib Mikati. And it's a port city, isn't it? But it also has a um, huge influence coming in from Syria over land, uh, I seem to remember. Is Syria and is it well connected with sort of the wider region in terms of the influence on its politics? Uh, Syria has been a major influence on, uh, on, on Lebanon, of course, as a and uh, and on Tripoli, um, I mean, uh, one cannot really speak about one Syrian foreign policy vis-à-vis -vis Lebanon. I mean, there are so many Syrian-Lebanese networks, and Elisabeth Picard, a French scholar, she writes about this. Because um, historically, there were so many intermarriages between uh, Lebanon and Syria, and particularly among um, elites from Tripoli and um and the Syrian, it's Syrian hinterland. It's not very far to go to Syria at all. So for geographical and histor historical and family reasons, those uh, regions are really uh, close, especially Tripoli with Homs and the area around Homs. So um, as you know, in 1975, civil war breaks out in Lebanon. And in 76, Syria, uh, the Syrian army enters um, Lebanon with 20,000 troops in order to stop the civil war. However, it um, plays the role as um, um, sorry. It, uh, it also contributes to fueling um, new new wars in Lebanon, and it uh, divides and rules uh, a lot of uh, various Lebanese groups up against each other. And this also uh, happens in Tripoli. So Syria created uh, new wars in Lebanon and uh, promoted its own self-interest. Um, 
including the interests of its um, of the family members of the Assad regime who enriched themselves from smuggling in Tripoli and from taking control of Tripoli's infrastructure. And what is important here is that in 2005, Syria, of course, withdraws from Lebanon um, after 29 years. And um, the population in Tripoli has by this time become very anti-Syrian regime, anti-Assad regime, because of the domination for so many years. So in 2005, um, Tripoli becomes the... um, the bastion of, or the stronghold of a political move, uh, movement, Sunni movement called the Future Movement, led by Saad Hariri, the son of uh, Rafiq Hariri, the former prime minister, slain prime minister, and uh, supported by Saudi Arabia against Syria and Iran. So Tripoli becomes really this capital of political Sunnism in Lebanon against Iran and Hezbollah. Do, where does the idea of city corporatism come into this? Uh, and what is it and how does it sort of manifest itself in Tripoli? So um, in my book, I, I use two concepts, uh, that um, secondary city and city corporatism. And I argue that, um, as I said, Tripoli used to be a provincial capital in, in the Ottoman Empire. So it used to be more important historically, uh, politically, uh, in terms of economics and symbolically. And uh, in 1920, all this falls apart when the state of Greater Lebanon is created and people in Tripoli refuse the state of Greater Lebanon because it's a state that is created by the French mandate um, against uh, that is created uh, by the French for the Maronites, uh, whom are given the, um, the position of president. And it is also um, a capitalist state. Um, and many um, people in Tripoli... And they might be capitalists, but over time they become very Arab nationalists. So for very many reasons, people in Tripoli, and especially its elites, Sunni elites, they opposed the, the state of Greater Lebanon, and they uh, f- actually fight it, um, first militarily, some of them, very few of them, but some of them, they fight it, resist against the French, and then um, this is the case for all of the Arab nationalists of Lebanon, but in, in Tripoli, people are more stubborn, or its leaders, the Sunni leaders of Tripoli, were more stubborn, so they resisted the Lebanese state, many of them, until independence in 1943. In 1943, uh, Tripoli's elites accept to be included in the, uh, in the state of, uh, Lebanese, of the Lebanese Republic, but... Uh, um, Ideologies such as Arab nationalism, such as Palestinian nationalism, such as Islamism, will be very popular. Um, and they have a resonance because people still refuse the state or are alienated by the state to a certain extent. They don't refuse it, they accept it, but very reluctantly. So um, so when it comes to, so this is secondary city. So the city is dethroned. When it comes to city corporatism, I argue that this is a um, historical phenomenon that was created by the struggle in in Tripoli against the French uh, that actually united so many people in Tripoli um, against the French and against Beirut in the secondary city. People united against um, the capital, uh, Beirut, that was perceived as being um, a center for Maronite Christians that was dominated politically by Maronite Christians. And um, 
city corporatism um, united the city for a long time and it was in the interest of the political elites because those were or the Sunni elites those were those they uh, they were those um, promoting a certain idea of the city as a Sunni city it wasn't necessarily a very religious city but but it was promoted as being a very uh, Sunni city mm, by using certain myths because the leaders used certain myths for example said that Tripoli is the city of um, of religious knowledge and religious scholars and these myths religious myths they have uh, survived until today and they still play a role in political socialization I argue um, so what is city corporatism? It sounds like when I first read it, I was like, oh, is it something to do with like corporations or something like that? Or is it a way of getting people um, around a common cause or trying to create some an identity or what is it? It's a process of, um, or it's the identity that creates unity in the city. It's the process of, unifi- the, it's the historical phenomenon of how political leaders unify the city politically between 1920 and 1943 in the struggle against the French, using myths um, such as uh, Tripoli being the city of religious scholars and religious knowledge, um, using historical myths of Tripoli being a very anti-imperialistic city. So they forged historical myths in order to mobilize the population to oppose the French. And those myths, they survived after 1943, and they were used by Arab nationalist leaders who dominated the city, um, for until the ni- until uh, the 1990s or 2000s, and they these myths were really important in uh, in making um, specific leaders become elected um, for all those years. Is it kind of um, is it like a nationalism on a local level? Is that one way to think about it? Maybe yeah, it's a city patriotism, right? But it goes beyond in the sense that. It also ex- excludes certain people and creates boundaries vis-à-vis outgroups. But it's important to note that uh, in my book I'm uh, saying that uh, city uh, corporatism declined over time, so it declined for uh, a set of reasons, very many various reasons, since the 1970s, and uh, happy to come back to that afterwards if you would like. But there is no more. Um, it was a historical phenomenon that uh, ended what what took its place from the 1970s? So in my book, I'm tr- I'm analyzing the decline of city corporatism. Uh, it's it's um, linked to the decline of trust, the city becoming more fragmented. So you see the isolation of certain urban areas where people become uh, more alienated, especially certain areas are becoming like ghettos because they are isolated from the rest of um, urban, the urban sphere. And political leaders are taking increasing distance vis-à-vis the voters, so they're not appearing in urban space anymore. Yeah, the emotional distance of political leaders uh, vis-à-vis those who elected them. So um, what is taking its space? It's, um, it's a good question, but it's um, there is no more as one... I mean... The city has become more plural over time. Of course, it's become a much larger city with rural-urban migration. So you can't compare a city 
in the 1930s and 40s to what it is today. The city has become much more plural in class terms. Mm, it has become... I mean, there are so many more people living there and people don't know each other anymore. So certain areas are are becoming really excluded and there are really great um, academic works on this, on how realist, the strategies of real estate um, promoters are isolating certain areas that are seen as problematic or as uh, security threats linked to jihadism or perceived as linked to jihadism. Because I guess a lot of cities, and you write about this in the book, uh, cities like Baghdad or Belfast um, often have sort of literal and metaphorical walls dividing people along uh, religious or uh, political boundaries. Um, Is this similar to what you write about that happens in Tripoli? And where does class politics come into this uh, dividing of the city? Those cities that you that you mentioned are probably more. Um, I mean, the Tripoli has eighty to ninety percent of um, of. I mean, in terms of religious divisions, um, eighty to ninety percent of Tripoli's population is from one specific uh, religion or uh, Lebanese sect. But what is um, unlike the case of uh, Baghdad or uh, or Belfast or Beirut that are more. Um, where groups are more of equal size, perhaps. Um, although in Baghdad, of course, um, this changed over time. But um, so in Tripoli, what is interesting is that it is a case of where you see um, where you see groups being created that are not on the on the basis of uh, sectarianism. Where you see the pluralism of Sunni identity, you see class divides and. Um, yeah, political economy divides, and you see that that um, in fact, Michael Johnson, I think, in his book *Class and Client in Beirut*, he argues that whereas the Maronite community, they are the elites of the Maronite communities or, or the wealthiest of the Maronite community, they identify with the the poor of the same community because they have this uh, minority um, identity. This is not the case for Sunnis. They see themselves not as constituting a minority. They see themselves as part of a majority in the wider Arab Middle East. So um, the Sunnis of the middle class don't necessarily identify with the uh, the Sunnis of the urban poor. They identify with the Christians of their class. So they, the class identity of the Sunnis uh, tend to prime over the um of the religious identity. So you really see that uh, in my, um, and I try to show that in my book, how the Sunni community is really plural and how the content of Sunni identity changes over time. And in the book, you have a chapter on the protests which uh, occurred in 2019 in Al-Nur Square. Um, What was that movement? And how does it, how did it either reflect or diverge from the kind of city that which we've been talking about already uh, in the 20 or 30 years which preceded 2019? So in, 20, in October 2019, a na- nationwide protest movement erupts in Lebanon that we actually, I think most listeners uh, have heard about. The um, 
protests against corruption that began as a protest against uh, a new tax on WhatsApp and that uh, spreads all across uh, Lebanon mm, from Beirut to Tripoli. And Tripoli becomes one of the centers of the protest because Tripoli is um, the protest against the elites and against the corruption because Tripoli is such a, um, a poor and deprived city. And um, protests in Tripoli actually continue longer than those uh, in Beirut and they keep um, and they help keeping protest, the nationwide protests alive. So Tripoli is labeled as the bride of the revolution. And what is interesting, what was interesting for me uh, was that I had interviewed a lot of um, a lot of uh, Islamists, a lot of sectarian leaders, or people with very sectarian discourse. And all of a sudden, you see people coming out in the streets and. Um, um, who, who don't have this discourse at all and who have um, who represent civil society, students, young people, people from various social classes, people also coming from outside of Tripoli. So um, it gave a very different image of Tripoli compared to what people had had until then, when Tripoli so far had been very often depicted in the news as being a Kandahar of the Middle East or Kandahar of... Um, of uh, Lebanon's Kandahar, like a radical city. And now we saw that people people in Tripoli were normal people singing and dancing and uh, protesting against corruption and that it was absolutely safe for everyone to be there. Stability was maintained. Mm, various um, religious groups were side by side. So for me as well, it was um, really interesting to see this other uh, image of Tripoli. And... Um, one of the one of the reasons behind it is that is the strengthening of civil society in Tripoli in uh, since uh, the 2010s and um, that had I mean that uh, have actually been yeah been strengthened and taking increasing uh, space and. Um, also, you saw that the Islamists that had dominated public um, debate sometimes, or the media image, at, at least uh, in Tripoli, they uh, had vanished, or had they not? That was the question. Like, what role did the Islamists play in, in those protests? And uh, with a colleague uh, from Tripoli, we're doing an uh, article on that right now, and one of our arguments is that they, as a strategy, they uh, took a step back because they didn't want the protest in Tripoli to seem um, dominated by Islamists. They were never that to begin with, but Islamists didn't even want to be present because they didn't want to give a poor media image to Tripoli. They were also conscious of this um, process of stigmatizing Tripoli because of its uh, um, reportedly Islamist identity, which is not the case. And so what I argue in my book is that um, the protests in Tripoli that were Islamists uh, in the period after 2011 uh, garnished perhaps 1,500 supporters or there were 1,400 uh, people in the streets, whereas here you had uh, tens and thousands of people. So um, the Islamists, maybe they don't represent more than 1% or 5% of Tripoli's population. They're really marginal, but they're just taking such a big uh, space in the media and in public sphere. Whereas um, this generation of students, of people, people um, 
from various social classes who oppose the elites, the problem for them is that they don't necessarily have much in common beyond what they are against. They can all find unity against corruption, but they cannot find uh, or forge a common political program. And of course, since then, Tripoli has been uh, marginalized uh, because of the economic crisis that slowed the uprising down, and uh, also because of the coronavirus, of course. But, I mean, um, I was in Tripoli just... Uh, I mean, I don't live in Tripoli, but I was there uh, a month and a half ago. And um, it's really sad to see how uh, poverty has increased, um, specifically in Tripoli, uh, more so than and other places in Lebanon and how Tripoli um, suffers uh, from the Lebanese financial and economic crisis these days and how people are uh, some people are leaving Tripoli um, these days in, on small boats trying to escape and to move uh, move to Europe and some of them drown on their way so it's um, the protests uh, stopped and uh, the focus now is uh, on the economic crisis and um, because of the earthquake, um, my colleague told me yesterday, because, because of the earthquake, there are more, even more electricity problems now in Tripoli than, um, than even last month. And uh, there's even a shortage of water because you need electricity to have water. And um, yeah, so the situation is, uh, is not great these days. And uh, just as a short final question, um... As poverty increases in the city, does that see a rise in the popularity of Islamist groups? Or do you sense like new kinds of um, class consciousness or social movements arising in the last few, last couple of years? I think that, um, that these days people are focusing on survival and they're actually not prone to uh, political mobilization. As you know, um, the big leader in Tripoli or the big the one who was seen as the big leader of Tripoli since 2005, Saad Hariri, he withdrew from politics um, just before the, re- uh, the last elections. And uh, there is no leader yet to replacing. So people are longing for a leader and they don't have one. And uh, some people are desperate and willing to... Um, they have nothing to lose, so they will be uh, prone to be mobilized into various groups, including radical groups. But uh, I think the most important thing these days is that people are focusing on survival. And um, But um, another thing perhaps that can be mentioned is that even um, European embassies these days or, uh, and the US embassy, they're focusing, they're seeing the importance of Tripoli and stability in Tripoli. And they're um, frequently visiting Tripoli in order to uh, promote stability because uh, they see that uh, Tripoli is one of the zones where um, where Lebanese stability could be challenged given um, the economic problems uh, these days.